Welcome to the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Join RJ and Dylan as they discuss each week's Seattle Kraken news and top stories from around the league. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. And a lot has happened since our last episode, most notably free agency. Uh, Things have now calmed down a bit, but the Kraken were very busy early on signing a trio of key free agents. And we're going to talk about each of those. And the first one is Jaden Schwartz. Uh, Now, there have been a lot of rumored interest in him before free agency, and the Kraken kind of went and got their guy. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly the biggest name brought in. He was, you know, almost the biggest contract. Um, He fills the need of what they really needed, which was additional scoring help, particularly on the first line. Uh, We have him projected to be their, you know, first line left wing. Um, It's an interesting signing for a couple reasons, right? We, you know... It fits in with Ron Francis's whole, we want two-way guys, we want hustle players, we want guys that are high energy, that are physical, all that stuff. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed as I've dug a little deeper into him over the course of this year, uh, over the course of the last week, I should say, um, is, you know, analytically, he doesn't quite line up as that two-way guy that I kind of thought he was, or, um, you know the way we kind of think of a lot of these more power forward types. And by that, I mean, mostly um, he's his offensive zone starts are insanely high. Like we're, we're talking <laughs> in his, in his 10 year career, only four times has he been below 60% offensive zone <laughs> starts. And only twice um, has he been below 55%. So, you know, to me, when I'm seeing you know a player start in the offensive zone that often, I would like to see you know maybe a couple more 25 goal seasons than what we're seeing here. Um, particularly shooting percentage wise, basically he's got to shoot like 15% to get to 25 goals, which is very very hard to sustain. Um, so there's you know as, as I've been looking at the Schwartz deal, a, a little bit of the shine is wearing off for me. That said, I still think he's a phenomenal um, leader. I think he's a great guy to have in the locker room. I think he's going to do a lot for the team. He's never really played first-line minutes, per se, so I think you know that'll obviously... You'll see an, uh, an uptick in scoring for him doing that with the Kraken. Um, but it, it was just something that kind of gave me a second of pause, considering you know we saw Brandon Saad signed with St. Louis to basically replace... Jaden Schwartz there for a million less and Brandon Saad's numbers are a little bit better. So that was a little surprising uh, just as I started digging into it. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the zone starts, Schwartz, you know, while he wasn't, you know, playing first line minutes, I think he was still used in a top six role. And one thing I've noticed when looking at zone starts around the league is you'll find guys who are used in generally an offensive top six role that will have zone starts that do look shockingly high like that. Um, and it's not necessarily a knock on them. It's just usage. Um, and his scoring numbers have still been pretty good you know, over the course of his career. And you have to factor in missed games. A lot of these times you look at just raw point totals. 
but he's playing, you know, 62, 69, 70 games, not the full slate of 82. So it's going to look a little less. It's going to look like a 50-something point season instead of maybe it would have been a 65, a 70-point season, something like that. Um, and, of course, injuries, that is the big question mark on him, and especially when you're giving him that kind of term. Uh, you know, you're not sure what's going to happen with that. But uh, I don't have that much of a problem with it. You did bring up the Brandon Saad contract, and I do think on paper it's probably better value, that Saad deal. But I think as far as a fit uh, for Seattle, I think Schwartz is probably the higher upside option. And I think given the amount of scoring they're going to need, that's probably best for them. Yeah, and you know, you did bring up kind of his injury history. He's only played one full season in his whole career. And that's, yep. you know, a little scary. I mean, we've had... You know, basically in the course of his career, we've had three seasons that have been not full seasons due to labor, you know, labor strikes, all that kind of stuff, or due to COVID. And he he only was able to play one of those all the way through. So um, he's definitely a guy that I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say we cannot count on playing 82 games a year, um, basically ever, because he never has before. So um, that's something that's also a little worrying, especially like you said, five-year contract just turned 29 so most of those years are going to be over 30 where we see guys generally start to break down a little bit more um so that's that'll be something else to to look at right and one more thing on the short signing um you mentioned about how some of the i mean zone starts isn't too advanced of a number but it's more than just you know like accounting stat type of thing how much do you think the analytics department has played a role in some of these signings versus not. Because, as you said, this is something, a signing that maybe the analytics department might look at and be like, eh. But, you know, someone like Ron Francis, who's, you know, more of a traditional hockey kind of guy, might say, well, I love the 200-foot game. I love the hustle. I love the fit. I love that he wants to be in Seattle. You know, how much do you think that give and take is there on some of these signings? You know, it seemed like before the expansion draft that the analytics department was going to play a much bigger role in all of this. Um, I, I think post-expansion draft, I don't know that we can say that. Uh, there's right. been a lot of a lot of picks, a lot of signings now, you know, including him. Where, yeah, I I, I think teams that have taken a, a strong analytics approach, I don't think they would have made some of the same roster decisions that Ron Francis has made. Um, so, you know, looking at it now, my guess is the analytics department has some say, but but obviously the buck stops with Ron Francis and and ultimately his decision is the decision that gets made, which I don't have a problem with. I, I think at some point you do need someone who's just going to make the call and, you know, fall on the sword if things go bad. But um, we were certainly kind of led to believe earlier on that that overall there was going to be a lot more focus on this kind of thing. You know, that said, I think in a lot of ways, we haven't exactly seen some of the teams that have taken strong analytic approaches have a ton of success anyway. Like, you know, hockey being kind of an inherently random sport, you can only do so much building analytically. It's not like baseball, where you can really just focus on that and know, you know, well, we got a 162 game season, so everything will play out, you know, as the numbers say it should, right? Hockey's a little less like that. Um, 
So I don't, again, I don't have a, uh, a problem with it. it. It's just been kind of an interesting thing to find out post-expansion draft. Right, and we've learned a lot. Um, so the next free agent signing, Alex Wenberg. And uh, it was interesting hearing from Ron Francis saying that he planned on having Wenberg in the top six. So Wenberg, of course, is a center, and he had been mostly playing, you know, on a third-line center kind of role, but Ron Francis does envision him as a center for the first or second line. I don't know how long he plans on that being the case or how much that has to do with maybe Yanni Gord missing the start of the season or just kind of the lack of high-end centers on this team. But, you know, how do you feel about Alex Wenberg being a top-six center on the Kraken? You know, for now, I like it. Obviously, center depth is is their number one question mark. Everywhere else on the team, you know, the team looks pretty good, um, right. if not fantastic in certain places, like on defense and goaltending-wise. Um, I really like Wenberg. I think he has a ton of great two-way potential, much like Yanni Gord. I, I kind of see him as a Yanni Gord light. However, when you're talking about, I think, their two best centers being Wenberg and Gord, they're both more defensive guys. They're more, you know, shut down an opposing team's offensive player rather than drive offense. So I, I don't know how that's going to play out for the Kraken, having those guys be your top two centers. Because um, I would assume Yanni Gord, once, he's, once he comes back to the lineup, he's, you know, not going to start the season because of shoulder surgery. I assume once he comes back to the lineup, he'll be in a top six role too. So I guess I'd, I'd want some clarification from Francis about, you know, is Wenberg going to be top six only because Gord is out? Or is the plan to have Wenberg and Gord be your two top six centermen? Um, yeah, and I think if this is the roster you go into the season with, then it makes sense, I guess. I mean, look at who else would be the alternative. Maybe a Jared McCann or... I mean, Kelly Yarncroft, neither of those guys are better suited to be your first line center than Wenberg. So I, I think right now, as the roster is, I think he, he kind of does believe that. And of course, you know, we'll see. You can always add. Um, so you can always do that sort of stuff. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what Wenberg's role is. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. um, you know, in a lot of ways, I would say slot him ahead of Yanni Gord. Like, like I'd rather see Wenberg play with Schwartz and Everlay on the top line than Yanni Gord. I think Yanni Gord is so valuable defensively, particularly in the playoffs, that I'd like to see him a little bit further down the lineup. But at the same time, you know, Gord's one of the few guys on this team with a good track record offensively. So it'll be interesting to see when he gets healthy how uh, Dave Haxtall wants to work him into the lineup. For sure. So last but certainly not least, the Kraken's... Biggest free agent signing, I think anyone would agree. Philip Grubauer, uh, which was a bit of a surprise, already having Chris Drieger in it. It looked like they were set to go with the Drieger-Vonacek tandem. Uh, but as Ron Francis said, they didn't expect Grubauer to make it to free agency. And it was just something they had to uh, consider once it became available. And obviously they felt that it was the best move to improve their team. Yeah, I mean, this kind of shocked me i think it shocked a lot of people um i didn't expect them to go out and get a goalie you know you mentioned they already had chris drieger they had vonacek as well we had already were talking that that's you know one of the better pairings you could have 
uh, in the league, and then to go out and get you know a Vesna finalist and Group Hour on top of all that is you know is it's pretty interesting to say the least. Um, I love Grubauer. I've liked Grubauer for a long time. You know, my only question mark with him is he's never been a true number one in the NHL from a workload standpoint. You know, last year, the last two years really in Colorado were the first couple years where he's played the vast majority of starts, but both seasons were cut short due to COVID. So I don't know, um, you know, how his body can handle being a number one through a full workload. Granted, with Drieger, he's probably not going to be asked to do that. So I think both guys should have 35-plus starts, uh, which means both should be healthy and fresh for the playoffs, which I think both of us agree is kind of an ideal thing to have. Um, yep. But yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a surprising deal. I like the contract, though. I don't think they overpaid for him. Uh, to have both of those guys under contract and have the combined cap hit be under $10 million, I think, is a big deal. To, to know that you have two guys you can lean on should one get hurt or one's in a slump or anything like that. I think that's really valuable, and to not be overly committed to it cap space-wise is really important. Right, and I think you, there's a big positive element to the deal, and that's the fact that you're getting probably the best goalie tandem in the NHL right away to start your franchise off. Uh, you, know, you have a Vesna finalist. You have another guy who has even put up better numbers over the last couple seasons in Chris Drieger. And um, they're, you know, numbers-wise, at least two of the top 10 goalies in the NHL, and no other team has that. Uh, so that's going to be huge for the Kraken, uh, especially if they, you know, might struggle to score looking at the forwards. Uh, you know you're always going to get that good goaltending every night. Um, on the flip side of it, I, I am not crazy about the six-year term for Grubauer or for any goalie, and, and that's what it is. It's just any goalie that's around that age I, I hesitate to give term to because goaltenders, you never know exactly what you're going to get. Uh, and even a guy like Carey Price has kind of put up mediocre numbers the last four seasons in total, you know, in the regular season, uh, you got a guy like Carter Hart, who, you know, very promising rookie year and then very, very bad last year. Um, you just never know. You know, Jonathan Quick, who was, you know, had legendary playoff runs and regular season, and all that. And now he's been one of the worst, you know, I think bottom three goalie numbers wise over the last couple of years. So you just never know for sure. And with a six-year term, it, it gives me pause for any goalie. Yeah, I mean, especially the goalies that have gone on deep playoff runs. That's something I've talked about before, where if goalies go on deep playoff runs, it's it's kind of crazy how they almost never recover from it. Or if they do, it takes years. Uh, you look at Matt Murray going back-to-back -back Stanley Cups with the Penguins, and he's never been the same since. Uh, Jordan, Jordan Binnington with St. Louis obviously goes on that incredible playoff run, hasn't been the same since they won the Cup. Um, you know, Grubauer hasn't gone on any deep playoff runs with the Avs. I think, you know, that's been one of the things is Colorado's disappointed the last two years in the playoffs. Uh, but, you know, on top of it, like I said, he, has, he also hasn't faced a full workload either. So I, I'm not as worried unless, you know, Seattle goes on two deep playoff runs in the next two or three years, then I'll start to get worried for the back half of the contract. But yeah, in which case, point, I don't think we'll be all that disappointed in general. Exactly. We'll take that. Exactly. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, there's definitely not a whole lot of tread on the tires compared to you know most goalies that are his age. I, he maxed out last year at 40 games played, and that's a career high for him in the NHL. So mm-hmm. uh, I do think you know of all the go- like 29 year old goalies you could sign, uh, he probably still has the most left in the tank. Now, one thing I wanted to get into with his contract, uh, the NHL actually, the Central Registry actually rejected the initial contract that he had signed with the Kraken uh, because it did not meet the uh, front-loading contract requirements uh, per per the CBA. So how much of a big deal is that? I mean, it was it was kind of a nothing burger. Yet, uh, yet came out yesterday, and you know the league rejects the contract. And oh, this is a, a bad look for the Kraken. And um, yeah, how how important is that really? I don't know. It it was certainly interesting, um, in the sense that you just don't really see teams make mistakes like that, like ever. Um, it wasn't a huge deal, like you said. They shuffled around a little bit of money. I think it was only like. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars from one year to a different year, to, right? To and I should explain, it. by the way, uh, just for those who, because this is complicated, you know, cap stuff. This is not not like normal stuff that most fans get into. Simply explain on a front-loaded contract when more than half the money is in the first half of the deal. So the salary change, basically the variance from one year to the next, can't be more than twenty-five percent of the first year of the contract. Now, it used to be 35%, which changed with the new memorandum of union they signed last year. So it used to be where this contract would be compliant. So it changed last year. So it's not materially important, but still, like, every team hires people specifically to comply with these rules. So you'd really like for that not to happen. And you generally just don't see these mistakes made. Yeah, you know, it's not like, oh, the the contract was voided and then Grubauer went and signed somewhere else or something. That would be obviously a disaster this is more of just an embarrassment in the sense that you know you just kind of messed up on something no one really ever messes up on but you know it it does make you make you wonder a little bit particularly when factoring in some of the um you know interesting trades we've seen happen post expansion draft of players that were available to the kraken that the kraken didn't take that we've then seen traded for assets you know, right. it, it kind of, when combined with stuff like the Brendan Dillons and and stuff like that, it, it does make The Doron kinda... non-pick, Gavin Bayreuther pick. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's one of those where normally this would be nothing, but kind of because it's happening so close to those other things, maybe it makes you think, you know, well, what's Ron Francis doing up there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on Twitter about these sort of things where I've I've called attention to it. And again, these aren't major mistakes. Um, but when, and, and in isolation, they're not even really worth calling attention to. But when you see, you know, two, three, four of them just kind of strung together, it's just something that's worth keeping an eye on, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's, again, it's nothing material that's going to certainly impact the roster this year, right? You're talking about missing out on some, you know, mid round, uh, future picks or in this case you're just talking about restructuring where money is is given to a player between years but it but it's one of those things that you know it it shows maybe a little shakiness or certainly maybe a, a little bit of a lack of attention to detail that you know ultimately those are the things that maybe are the difference between teams like the Tampa Bay Lightning 
versus some teams that we've seen, you know, perennially struggle to make the playoffs, right? It's it's sometimes that attention to detail, that that ability to really work deals, to really know, you know, what all the other GMs in the league are thinking, how they value players, right? It's one thing to know how you value a player, and I don't want to make that sound like that's easy because it's actually not. Um, <laughs> but but to then also be able to factor in how other teams see players, you know, that's something that you look at, you know, obviously Stevie Iserman is like the top tier God level GM, right? I wouldn't <laughs> compare anyone to him, but that's the kind of stuff that he's done for, you know, a decade now, whether it be in Tampa or now we're seeing it in Detroit where he pulls off these deals like the um, Nedeljkovic deal, right? Where it's like he yeah. he just he knows where guys are going to be not valued by teams, so he can bring them in and give these sweet contracts to them, and and everything works out great for him. So and obviously he did that a lot while building that Tampa Bay team. So um, it, it's just one of those things where it just makes you pause a little and and think. But yeah, ultimately it's not that big a deal, I guess. Yeah, and. I think like we often moving on essentially from yeah. this because no one's going to remember this come October, this, this specific incident. But now that things have settled down a little bit in free agency, it's been a few days since the Kraken have signed anyone. Uh, but that raises the question, you know, are the Kraken done looking at this lineup? There's still some holes you could see potentially filled. And Ron Francis uh in his presser after free agency, after the first day, certainly implied that they weren't done, that they were still looking to add something in the bottom six. There were rumors that they were going after uh, Casey Sezikis, formerly with the Islanders, but it looks like he'll be staying uh, in New York. Uh, what do you think the Kraken are going to do now? Are they done? Is there anyone else that you think they should go after? I don't know that there's anyone else free agency-wise that I'd want them to go after. Um you know, one of the benefits of being an expansion team is that your bottom six is is better than most teams' bottom six. That's really the only guys left out there free agency-wise that you would target. I feel like their bottom six is really strong already. I mean, they're guys that we've seen play top six roles or, or who are maybe deserving of top six roles in their bottom six. So I'm not I'm not really worried about that center depth is still the issue like we said they don't really have a true number one center but it's not like you're ever really going to be able to find that on the free agency market and when no. it is it's like you know john Tavares, right it's like this big seven team seven teams all bidding against each other and you're looking at these massive contracts that very rarely end up actually paying off um i i don't know i don't really see holes right we talked about it they have arguably the best goaltending duo in the league the defense doesn't have any holes. I mean, they still have too many defensemen, essentially, right? They got total NHL caliber top four guys on some teams, and they're going to have to scratch them right now. So don't need to do anything on defense. Offense, again, like I said, you, you want more scoring, but there's no one out there free agency-wise, and I don't know that the trade market's really there right now. Well, as far as scoring, I did have a name in mind, and that is Tomas Tatar. Mm-hmm. Now, he's someone that we've looked at in the past. We figured this, if the analytics team, you know, could like wrestle away Ron Francis' attention just for a minute, that they might want to give this guy a chance. I mean, you know, he doesn't help the center issue. He is just purely a winger. And, you know, he's been benched for some playoff runs. And I know that, you know, he's not always like coach's favorite guy. 
But since 2018, he's led the entire NHL in five-on-five expected goals for percentage. Now, like, I'm surprised for that reason alone the Kraken haven't shown some interest in him yet, at least that I've heard. You know, if they're listening to the analytics department at all, like, I know every department has their own proprietary metrics, so, like, the stuff we're looking at isn't necessarily what they're looking at. But it's not like, oh, he's got, he's got good analytics numbers, you know, maybe they look at him. He's literally first in the NHL over the last three seasons in expected goals for percentage. Like, he's not middle of the pack. He's number one. And he's just sitting here in free agency as the as days go by. So I wonder if you might be able to get a bargain there. And certainly if he'd be looking to a one-year contract, there's no downside with the cap space the Kraken have right now if he's looking at a one-year deal. Yeah, certainly if it's going to be a one-year deal, there's, there's definitely nothing to be concerned about. And what's interesting about him specifically is, yes, he has the analytics to back him up, but it's not like his counting stats have been that bad either. Right, you're talking about you know this this past season in Montreal, he obviously fell out of favor, particularly with Don Ducharme. So, but you know the year before that, he had 61 points in 68 games. Right, year before that, he scored 25 goals. Like this isn't a guy that has struggled in you know the more traditional areas of judging a player by talent. Um, you know he doesn't I guess fit. Ron Francis's whole, you know, two-way, 200-foot game kind of thing. But at the same time, you can't have a roster of only those guys. Like, you got to score a goal eventually, right? And, yep. and Tomas Tatar is someone who's capable of doing that. Um, I don't know if maybe there's some behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't know, right? Obviously, he's bounced around the last couple seasons. Vegas mm-hmm. had him briefly, and they didn't really make a lot of effort to keep him. Um, Montreal, obviously, you know, he was basically scratched that whole playoff run, and there were definitely times where they could have used him, seemingly. So I don't know if there's maybe a character issue behind the scenes that just hasn't made its way out to the public yet, but certainly on paper, whether you're looking analytically or just at his counting stats, yeah, it doesn't make sense why no one signed him, much less the Kraken. Right. So that's a name I'd like to see them maybe circle back to if they think there's a chance for a bargain deal. I don't know, you know what he's looking for, but um, I'd like to see that. Uh, and lastly, as far as you know, what they might go out and do, I know you said that you didn't really see any holes in the bottom six, that that looks all short up. But I think Ron Francis might disagree with you. I think he still feels like there's a need for some added toughness in the bottom six that, well, it looks good to us that you know that he thinks it might need a player like Casey Sezikis, someone who's going to be very difficult to play against, someone who's going to hit you, someone who's going to um, you know, be kind of a shutdown bottom six guy. Uh, and I think it's something that even though he didn't get Sezikis, he's probably going to try and address one way or the other. Knowing how NHL GMs tend to think and behave, <laughs> uh, it's not the kind of thing that I think they would just let go unaddressed. Yeah, I mean, you have Brandon Tanev who can do that. Um for me, guys like that, it's it's a very you're walking a very thin line between them being you know aggressive physical guys that can wear you down versus being guys that are you know essentially just enforcers who don't bring really anything to the table, right? There's there's a very thin line that teams like the Islanders have really figured out and zeroed in on guys like that. Um, and the Rangers, 
doesn't seem like they have bringing in Ryan Reeves. Exactly. So, although that's really more just to deal with their Tom Wilson problem more yeah. than anything. So, for for my money, I would rather have a bottom six full of guys that are hustle guys, right? They're going to wear you down just because they're going to outwork you. They These are guys that have elite level endurance. They never take a shift off. And I feel like the Kraken have a lot of guys like that in, you know, Colin Blackwell or, um, you know, we've seen Jared McCann do that in Pittsburgh. Callie Yarncroke can do that. Mason Appleton can do that. So I, I feel like Seattle has a lot of those kind of guys. Yes, they're not going to wear you down physically, where by the end of a seven-game series, per se, maybe the other team is missing a top six forward just because they've been, you know, beaten into the ground. But at the same time, I think there's, I think it can be just as valuable to have just these high-effort guys that that don't take shifts off so the other team never has a chance to breathe. Uh, I think yeah. you know, Tampa has really taken more of that approach as far as their depth and you know their back-to-back cup champions, right? They don't exactly have a forward out there that you say, oh, that's the guy that you know beats somebody into the ground. Whereas, you know, obviously the Islanders have gone on two good playoff runs, but ultimately Tampa Bay's beaten them out both times. Yeah, I know. I agree. That's probably the way to do it. And I, I like that distinction between kind of the guys who will outwork you versus the guys who will grind you down. And it's clear from the Kraken's roster construction that they're not, the forwards aren't necessarily meant to grind you down. You're going to have a top six forward missing because he's going to have to deal with Jamie Alexiak and Carson Soucy mm-hmm. back on the blue line. You know, that's why you're going to be ground down. I think it's the defenseman's job that they're going to be the ones to do it. And, you know, one last thing to kind of touch on with that is we saw during the playoffs last year, um, cross-checking became, you know, a a focal point for certainly the media and fans watching a lot of those playoff series. We obviously know uh, what happened to Nikita Kucherov with the broken rib from uh, Mayfield, I think it was, of the Islanders. And, you know, it's sounding like the league is really going to take a look at that and maybe adjust things moving forward. Um, for next year's playoffs on how they officiate stuff like that. So if the league is going to start taking that stuff in the playoffs a little more seriously than it has in the past, then yes, I would I would much rather the Kraken be in a position where they have guys that are just going to outwork the opponents rather than try to be physical with them if the league is going to actually cut down on some of those physical elements. Right, and as always with that kind of stuff, we'll see and I'll believe it when I see it. Exactly. But, uh... <laughs> But, you know, if they do actually decide to do something about it, it's good to get ahead of the game. And it certainly doesn't hurt you otherwise if they don't make a change. So uh, one more bit of Kraken news, uh, and this happened yesterday. Uh, Defenseman Vince Dunn filed for salary arbitration. Um, So a bit of background on salary arbitration uh, for the uninitiated. How this works is basically, first of all, the team and the player... So Dunn and the Kraken, they can come to an agreement at any time before the arbitration hearing. So if in a few days they've talked it out and they want to sign a contract, they're totally free to do that, and then arbitration is not necessary and it's avoided. But if they don't, uh, both sides go to an independent arbitrator and they both present their case as to why the player is worth such and such you know, on a given deal. Uh, the arbitrator then gives a contract award. It's either one or two years. And so it, let's say it's, you know, two years at three and a half million, you know, average value. So at that time, the Kraken can then either decide to either accept it. And so then they sign that contract and that's what they get done for. 
or they can walk away and Dunn becomes an unrestricted free agent. He's free to sign with any team for whatever he wants. So as for what's going to happen in this given situation, I think they're probably going to reach an agreement beforehand. Arbitration is a pretty uncomfortable process. You know, you have teams basically saying, well, I don't think this player is worth that much. And you almost have to make the case for why they're, you know, why they're not as good as they think they are. And especially with the guy you just brought in, like Dunn, it's not the best way to start the relationship off. So I think that's ultimately where this is headed is just a a deal ahead of time. Uh, But, you know, what do you think about Dunn filing for for arbitration? Yeah, I mean, I can't can't really remember the last time that a, a team and a player really took it all the way to arbitration. Certainly in hockey, they get they get these deals figured out. You know, it's it's really just more of the arbitration date is just like an, a, a deadline to really hammer something out beforehand because mm-hmm. of the reasons you talked about, right? We've seen a lot of team team player relationships destroyed during the arbitration process just because you have to go in there, tell a player basically to his face that he's not good at XYZ and therefore he's not worth, you know, making life-changing money. And then, and then immediately after that deal gets signed, you have to turn around and be like, dude, we love you so much. We're going to bring you in. We want you to give 110% for our team, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And we've seen um, a lot of relationships go bad pretty quick after they've gone all the way to arbitration, which is why certainly the last couple of years, like I said, I can't really think of anybody who's actually gone all the way through the arbitration process. Um, I, right. I certainly think for a player of Dunn's ability, they're going to get something figured out. I, I would assume the Kraken want to figure out a long-term deal. You know, he's going to be 25 shortly after the season starts. So, he, you know, he's totally young enough to sign him to a long-term deal without having to worry about anything. And um, I think when looking at their defense, Dunn is really the guy that you look at and say, well, he's like the power play quarterback, right? They have a lot of, sure. a lot of big, solid defensively, you know, driven guys, but Dunn is really the the one guy you look at and you go, okay, that's the offensive-minded defenseman that, you know, we're going to lean on in certain situations. So I, I definitely think they get a deal done before that. Yeah, agreed. And and for reference, 17 players filed for salary arbitration this year. I'd be surprised to see more than one or two of them actually get there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually the case every year. And usually when it is the case that it goes the distance to arbitration, it's because a team is right up against the salary cap and they have to make sure they can't, you know, they can't afford that extra little half a million or whatever they're arguing over. And so it has to go there. The Kraken are as about as far from that situation as you can get uh, with over 15 million in cap space left. They should be able to hammer out a deal pretty much right away. Yeah. So uh, the biggest question. So now we've kind of covered all everything that's happened free agency wise. And it looks like we've got a pretty good indication of basically what the roster is going to look like, uh, you know, come opening night more or less. Mm -hmm. So that of course raises the question, how good are the Kraken? I mean, are they a playoff team? You know, where do we expect them to finish in their division, in the conference and, and ultimately, yeah, how good are they? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the question on everyone's mind. I think, you know, they're really good. I, I I think they they they're gonna definitely be competitive for a playoff spot. Um, you know, I I think they most likely will make the playoffs, particularly because of the division they're in. 
Uh, talked about it earlier, right? Their bottom six is a lot deeper than most teams, uh, if not all teams. Uh, we saw that being kind of the deciding factor for Vegas, certainly Vegas's first year and their first year playoff run, right? The fact that they essentially had four second lines meant that they were on par or better three, you know, 75% of the time when they had players on the ice. Uh, I don't know that the Kraken are quite as, as deep as Vegas was that first year, um, but I, I look, you know, kind of just going through the teams in the division, you know, Seattle is certainly deeper and better than Anaheim. Um, I, I don't see, you know, any way that Anaheim could keep up scoring-wise with the Kraken. Uh, I think they're they're deeper than Los Angeles. I think the Kings have Kopitar, who's going to drive a lot of stuff for that team. But, you know, after him, you know, their big, their big free agent acquisition was Philip Deneau, who I love from a playoff standpoint. And I love the fact that they're going to have Kopitar and Deneau down the middle, which means, you know, basically mm-hmm. no team will ever be able to score. But their bottom six isn't that deep yet. They're going to have a lot of young guys in there filling in this year. Uh, their defense isn't very deep. Goaltending is a huge question mark for them right now. So I, I, I see Seattle as being better than L.A., Seattle's better than San Jose. Again, you're just talking pure, purely from a depth perspective. San Jose's top top line, maybe top six is better. Certainly their top pairing defense is maybe better, depending on how Carlson and Vlasic decide to play this upcoming year. But um, overall, as a team, Seattle's better than San Jose, particularly in the goaltending department. Uh, Vancouver... I don't know what Vancouver's doing. They made a lot of moves this offseason. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out for them. But at the end of the day, if if all their young guys decide to play like they've played the last two seasons, Seattle will have no problem being higher than them in the standings. Calgary, again, all their top guys have just decided to kind of, you know, not try as hard the last couple of years. I, I don't know what happened to guys like, you know, Goudreau and Monaghan and stuff, but they have not been the dominant forces we've seen before. So kind of like Vancouver, they just seem like a slightly above 500 team, which I think the Kraken will be kind of more above 500 more solidly. Uh, Edmonton, they're certainly deeper than Edmonton. <laughs> I don't think we could make that yeah. argument. Uh, their, their goaltending is light years ahead of Edmonton, so they should, you know, over the course of a year end up higher than Edmonton. So all of a sudden you're talking about the Kraken being better than every team but Vegas in the division. So how do they not make the playoffs, right? Right. I mean, it certainly looks that way initially. I mean, one thing that's been circulating around a lot on Twitter that I've seen is uh, Jay Fresh uh, Hockey on Twitter. He has a, a war roster builder and it has standings projections for next season. Now, of course, the caveat with this is like all free agents, all UFAs are still not on their teams. So things will shake out a little differently once the rest of these guys get signed and whatnot. But it does have Seattle in second place in the Pacific Division behind only Vegas. And it's hard to argue with it's hard to argue with that. Um, looking like you did, kind of breaking down every team and where they're expected to finish in the Pacific Division, which is a pretty weak division, I think. Um, you have a lot of teams that are just question marks. I think you have Vegas that is far and away, I think, going to be number one. I mean, they're they're 
you know, getting their division championship banner ready right now, I think it's, you know, they that's pretty much locked in, I think. But beyond that, it's anyone's race, and I think the Kraken do look favorably compared to some of these other teams, especially in the depth per- in the uh, in the area of depth. And I like that you brought up, you know, the the terminology of you know Vegas had four second lines, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think looking at the Kraken right now, I think they have three second lines and like a third line. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. The way that a lot of these teams are constructed they just don't have the depth to deal with that, especially if the Kraken are going to get good goaltending. That's the thing that's going to put it over the edge. If you have that depth, you have that goaltending. It's, these other teams are just going to struggle to score on you, and especially in the Pacific Division, you see the depth lacking, more than in other divisions. Other teams in other divisions have superior depth to the Kraken, you know, by and large, but, you know, Edmonton, <laughs> Vancouver, Van- depth has been the Canucks problem for a long time, and they and they seem determined not to address it mm-hmm. <laughs> properly anyway um yeah I, I i would not be surprised if the kraken finished second in the pacific yeah and you know just to make it clear i don't just mean depth on forwards you know when i talk about how many second lines kind of they have it's also depth on defense the fact that the kraken can you know like i was saying earlier they have you know starting nhl caliber defensemen that they're going to have to scratch right now because they just have too many of them the fact that you know their worst pairing defense is still probably a top four pairing on most teams is is huge too and then the goaltending depth on top of it right how many of these teams do we look at in this division specifically and go well goaltending is is where the team gets totally let down right Edmonton needs depth kind of everywhere, but goaltending at the end of the day has been their biggest problem. Um, Calgary's run into that. Markstrom's kind of helping with that. Uh, Los Angeles and San Jose right now, they haven't been able to buy a save. You know, San Jose's made some big moves in the goaltending, you know, side of things this this year. We'll see how that shakes out for them. Uh, you know, so... I, I just think those things all add up to mean Seattle, again, you're talking about an 82-game season, assuming it goes the, the distance. That's a, that's a large sample size to work with. You know what I mean? Hockey's right. an inherently random sport, which is why generally I don't like relying on things that, you know, try to project stuff out using war, because as I was saying earlier, hockey's the one sport where you can't always rely on numbers. You still have to just kind of look at things on paper and say, well, nine out of 10 times, it's going to end up this way, but know that that 10% is, you know, it's a real 10% that you have to worry about sometimes. But uh, I just, things would have to go really wrong for the Kraken, I think. That or things would have to go really right in some situations. Like, you know, Hyman comes in for Edmonton and somehow means that they have two solid lines that can just outscore everybody. Or, uh, you know, John Gibson turns in just one of the most miraculous goaltending seasons we've ever seen in Anaheim, and he's able to steal, like, 40 games for them. Right? Like, yeah, I know. Or, and, and, or Jack, the Ducks get Jack Eichel, exactly. and they're yeah. ready to compete right away. Because that's still another, another shoe left to drop, and mm-hmm. there's certainly some Pacific Division teams that are in the running. Uh, between the Ducks and and Vegas, it seems like the Kings are out of it, but everyone's been out and back in and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can say that the Kings are out of the Eichel thing just because they haven't traded away any of those top prospects that they have, right? They they kind of have, I would say, you know, largely what I've seen the consensus number one prospect pool, 
which I got to think, you know, appeals to Buffalo. I think the Pacific Division has to be Buffalo's target just because it means they won't have to see Jack Eichel that often. Um, and, and yeah, there's a couple teams in there that could really, that seem like the front runners for any such deal anyway, which obviously completely changes the dynamics. I think if, if Los Angeles or Anaheim gets Jack Eichel, they're probably better than the Kraken, or at least on par with the Kraken. Um, right. But again, you're, you're, only one of them can get Eichel, which means the Kraken are still going to most likely be in a top three spot, which means they make the playoffs anyway. Yeah. Now, the Eichel trade, it's might even turn into this kind of Pacific Division arms race, you know, where these teams, you know, knowing in their bids, they're kind of competing against other teams in their division, you know, or with the Ducks and Kings, you know, in their state, you know, rivals that are close. But I got to revisit this. How about the Kraken? Because I wrote a couple articles, one all the way back more than a year ago, exploring the idea of an Eichel to Seattle trade. And then I kind of updated that, you know, a few months ago. Um, but I haven't really revisited it since then. And it seems like the situation is just escalating. It's getting even uglier. Um, some have argued the Sabres have you know, lost some leverage with Eichel's team basically disclosing a lot of the medical stuff that the Sabres were uh, you know, making teams submit a serious offer in order to get. It's just an ugly situation. But out of these ugly situations, sometimes you can take advantage. And it seemed like the Kraken maybe didn't have the assets post-expansion draft to get something like this done, but do they now? I mean, what do you think? I mean, maybe, but realistically, the fact that you're an expansion team, you only have one draft's worth of prospects, you know, in your prospect pool. You're talking any deal for Eichel for Seattle. Matty Beniers is for sure, like, the one key piece you're sending the other way. I think a first-rounder from from them isn't super valuable because like we were just saying they're a playoff team in this division so it's not going to be a high first round pick i just don't think and i don't think really a lot of the nhl assets that they have would intrigue buffalo so certainly if you're talking about an arms race within the division there's no way seattle can compete against los angeles and anaheim it would it would have to be that anaheim or los angeles just decide they don't want him basically for seattle to be able to put together a package good enough to get him and I just don't, yeah. I don't think that'll be, you know, happening. Right. I think you hit on it very early on. It sounds like the sticking point with an Eichel deal is that teams are just really hesitant to give up that one, like, top prospect that the Sabres are asking for. With the Golden Knights, it's Peyton Krebs. With the Kings, it's, like, Turcotte or Byfield. With the Ducks, it's Zegris or Drysdale. And it so far seems like these teams just aren't willing to part with that one high-end prospect. So what would have to set the Kraken's offer apart is including Matty Beneers. And I just, uh, while they could do that, uh, and I think have an attractive offer, I just don't think it's worth it uh, for them to do that. Certainly given they only have, like you said, one draft's worth of prospects in the prospect pool. And they only had just their seven picks. It's not like with Vegas where they were able to add a bunch of other picks, like, you know, 10, 12 picks. They just have these seven guys. And losing the top guy off of that, I don't know that that's the best thing to do if you're looking longer term. Yeah, especially because, you know, when you look at Seattle's roster, vast majority of these contracts come off the books after this year or the following year, right? Almost everybody on this team is only signed through the next two seasons, if that. So I don't know that bringing in an Eichel 
really makes sense for where the franchise is in general. I think bringing in an Eichel makes sense for every team in the league just because he's that good. But but certainly, for sure. but certainly for what it'll cost, you know, a deal like this made a lot more sense for Seattle a couple months ago because we were assuming they were going to be able to make a lot of side deals in, you know, in a similar way to what Vegas was able to do, and they were going to have a lot more assets to work with, but that never ended up materializing, so I, I just don't think Seattle's going to be able to do it. Yeah, I agree. And If uh, they should anyway. Much, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And as much fun as that would be, <laughs> uh, you know, having that kind of cornerstone, I, I think it's not, not the right move for them. All right. So now before we go, I want to do some kind of quick hits from around the league. There's been some recent news around the NHL, and uh, I just wanted to cover that real quick. And of course, the biggest, most recent story, and of course, this is an ongoing story, still developing, but it's been the biggest story in the NHL over the last couple of days. So we really ought to cover it. And that is the Evander Kane situation. Uh, it's obviously a very ugly situation between he and his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife and the part most relevant to the NHL and what they're investigating is allegations that Kane had uh, gambled on NHL games, which of course we know is a a very big Mm -hmm. no-no. Kane has of course denied those allegations and the investigation is still ongoing. Yeah. And you know, not only that, not only, is he alleged to have just gambled on NHL games, but also potentially Sharks games and games that he has then thrown on purpose, right. um, which you know certainly adds a lot to the to the seriousness of it all. Um, yeah, we, we you know the NHL jumped on that right away as far as investigating it. We'll see what comes of that. Um, yeah, but it, you know, divorces are never easy. Uh, and certainly when they're public and nasty like this, it's, 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 you know, always a little uncomfortable and stuff like this gets thrown around and it's just unfortunate for everybody involved. For sure. Um, so the other storyline we've kind of seen over the free agency period really is the market for defensemen around the NHL. You've had a lot of big money free agent signings, uh, Seth Jones signing his extension at nine and a half mil. Uh, Dougie Hamilton, his big deal with New Jersey. You've also seen a couple young defensemen, Miro Haskinen and Kale McCarr, get big contracts. And uh, we're really kind of seeing a resetting of the defense market around the NHL. Yeah, and you know, I, this kind of just is hitting me because we talked about uh, Dunn earlier. I, I almost wonder if that's impacting the signing of him with Seattle. Yeah, maybe Seattle did want a longer-term deal, but Dunn's looking at this market and saying, no, I'd like a bridge deal that takes me to, you know, unrestricted free agency in two years. Uh, that that seems like a much more attractive thing, I would think, to any young defenseman right now. Um, the other one, of course, being our boy, Zach Rowenski in Columbus. Yes. Getting the huge yes. payday. How did I forget? Uh, we've both been fans of his since, I mean, really since we saw him drafted in 2015. So I, I was happy to see that. I was happy just because like everyone acknowledged he exists because he's really been forgotten about in Columbus. Oh, for sure. He's been an unsung hero in Columbus and, you know, being in Seth Jones's shadow a lot. But man, he is an excellent defenseman in his own right. And he's certainly being paid like it now. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. We'll see with the, you know, the flat cap that, you know, everyone keeps saying is going to be three to five years. 
you know, obviously these contracts are taking up a huge percentage of the cap. You're talking over 10% for all of them. Um, you know, we've we've seen teams struggle doing that for players. You know, we, we see Edmonton struggle with that, just, you know, signing McDavid and Dreisaitl to deals that they deserve. Um, and, you know, now they're going to have to deal with Darnell Nurse at some point, which I'm sure the number on him is shifted drastically in light of all these contracts oh, yeah. so that's the next one that one's coming yeah it'll be interesting to see how all these shake out quinn hughes also has to get signed in vancouver all that's good news for the kraken because it means those teams are just going to have to eat up like all their cap space in one player which benefits yep. them so um but yeah it's it's been interesting i i like it as somebody who's tended to play defense more in in my playing days uh, I'm appreciative for these guys getting the love and getting the, the dough, but, um, you know, it's, it's just going to be interesting as the cap situation figures itself out over the next couple of years, how this, you know, if this really happens, you know, the ability of teams to do stuff. Right. And, um, you know, with the cap situation, of course, so important. And we saw that as a big factor behind probably the biggest trade of the last few days. And that is... The reigning Vesna winner traded from the Golden Knights to the Blackhawks for essentially nothing. You know, a low-level prospect, and really it's just traded for the cap space. Yeah, and really the unfortunate thing about it wasn't so much that, you know, Vegas traded him, but it was the fact that Flower had to find out over Twitter, right? They were not... They were not great about keeping him informed about the process they basically told him that they were going to explore trade options for him because they needed to to make cap space and then that was the like the last thing he heard from them until it was oh he's going to chicago and that's never a good look for an organization um it's you know it's one of those things hockey is a business sports are a business they're an entertainment business more than anything so you know at the end of the day the dollar is going to decide what happens, but you can still kind of act with a little more class than the Golden Knights did in a situation like this. For sure. Uh, trading Flurry is one thing. We know they had to move a goalie. That's understandable. But for someone who has done so much for your franchise and all that he's given and just the ultimate professional in the NHL, I mean, he's mm-hmm. got to be one of the most respected people in the league. To, to treat him like that on the way out the door is um, it's just unacceptable for you know from an organizational standpoint and it's a lesson that I really hope the Kraken can learn as far as you know you want to learn from the mistakes of others mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot that the Kraken can look at a lot of good and a lot of bad from Vegas in their first few years and this is something I definitely want them to take away you know let's say philip grubauer you know gets the crack into a cup final you know he wins a vesna you know he's really that foundational player that they've brought him in to be but at a certain point he's on the six-year deal you know it comes time where you have to move him you have to treat a franchise icon like that right you know i understand you have to make the move you have to make but that's something that you really want to end on the right terms especially for your fans um and I, I think, you know, Vegas is like Flurry obviously deserve better, but also the fans deserve better than to have that ending with a player that uh, that they love so much. And so I hope Seattle learns that lesson, especially with a few of the little detail things 
that maybe they haven't gotten right. Maybe someone forgot, you know, forgets to call him. It's the kind of thing that you just have to make sure to get right. And I hope Seattle keeps that in mind. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point. Obviously, there's the impact on Flower, which we saw, you know, both through his agent, who's always been very vocal on Twitter, and for that, I think everybody's thankful for. Um, But also just in the sense that there was, you know, I really thought he might retire there, right? That was certainly on the table, was just him retiring rather than go to Chicago just because of, you know, how upsetting that situation became so quickly. Um, and and so it shows the impact to the player, but yes, also to the also to the fans because it's it's just it's it's really rough when you just get blindsided as a fan base by something like this, where you know you see so many flower jerseys out in the in the stands during every game, right? He's he's been there for the community in a big way. People have been really appreciative of of that, and so just to have it all just go down one day. Um, it's, yeah, it, it makes it, you know, you judge your front office, you look at them a little differently after stuff like that. And that's generally not something you want as a team. Yeah, for sure. So hopefully, uh, the Kraken kind of take that lesson going forward. And, um, I'm confident that they will be mm-hmm. better about that when the time comes and, uh, you know, they should be so lucky to have a, a legend like that. And, and hopefully we'll... We'll see the crack and have a player like that that's you know as foundational as Flower has been for. So I think that's it. That wraps up this week's episode of the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>